Hi, everyone. My name is Benno Papari, and this is the Songwriters on Process podcast. Since 2010, I've interviewed over 300 songwriters about, well, their songwriting process. I don't care about favorite cities, tour stories, favorite foods, or anything like that. My goal has always been to treat songwriters the same way that we treat poets and more traditional prose writers. They are writers, plain and simple. In these interviews, we go deep into the specifics of the writing process. This is no, hey, do you start with lyrics of the music type of interview. Now, a little bit about me. I'm not a songwriter. In fact, I've never written a song in my life. I have a PhD in English language and literature, and I'm a former academic. So as a prose writer, I enjoy exploring how my process intersects with those of songwriters. This is an intelligent conversation about writing between two writers. And that, of course, means we talk a lot about books. The site features interviews across all genres, from metal to jazz, from country to that big category known as indie. You'll find a couple of A-list actors on the site and several members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as well. Now, I select songwriters to interview uh, who fit into one of two categories. One, do I listen to them already? And two, if I don't, would they make for a compelling and intelligent interview? You can find these interviews across all podcast platforms, as well as at songwritersonpodcast.com. Do you have an idea for an interview or a comment about the site? Hit me up at ben at songwritersonprocess.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Happy New Year and welcome everyone to the first Songwriters on Process podcast of 2024. And today we have Josh Radner. You may know Radner as an actor. Uh, he played Ted Mosby on the long-running TV series, How I Met Your Mother. Uh, but he's also a songwriter. And uh, I've interviewed other actors who are also songwriters, uh, Kevin Bacon and uh, Jeff Daniels. So it's always an interesting topic to talk to them about how their process, their creative process as an actor, the cross-pollination uh, into that, into the songwriting process, if at all, does it make them more disciplined? Are they more uh, invested in the words uh, in the process? And uh, Radner is, he says that when I sit down to write a song, it's much easier for me to have a lyrical idea than a melodic idea. So it often starts with lyrics. Now, I don't know if that's because he's an actor, but I, again, I think it's an interesting conversation to have with people who are prolific in those two genres. One of the other things that he mentioned was that he enjoys being a songwriter because, and I'm going to quote him directly, he said, I became a songwriter because you need permission to act, and I hated waiting around. I want to wake up and at least have a shot at being creative every day. In other words, you can sit up, you can you can wake up every morning, you can write a song. You can't wake up every morning and act. I mean, I guess you can in the comforts of your own home. But but to act, he needs permission. Someone's got to ask him to ask him to act. But no one has to ask him to be a songwriter. You can write songs, and he loves that about being a songwriter. Um, obviously, Radner's a voracious reader. He's got. Uh, you'll hear us talk about Steinbeck uh, and the classics and the the impact that they've had on him as well. Um, and the last thing I always like to to. Um, Give songwriters the E.L. Doctorow, the novelist, the writer E.L. E. Doctorow. He's got the quote about, uh, he says uh, um, something about writing. Um, gosh, I have it here somewhere. 
Um, but here it is. I have it right here handy. He says, um, writing is like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. And I, I often give that quote to songwriters to see how they react as a songwriter to that. And Radner had actually heard that quote before, and he thinks about it a lot because E.L. Doctorow is a, uh, he's a big E.L. Doctorow fan. So he lives by that credo. And his quote was, I put on a miner's light and try to make it around the next corner. So we don't know what's coming next. And I think as a writer, that's important. I, I don't think as a writer, I have any right knowing what my piece is going to look like at the end. And so Radner, I think, is the same way. He just kind of starts and then sees where that takes him. Again, um, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking to Radner. It, it's, it's, it's always, I enjoy these conversations where, where people who have other artistic endeavors to see how they, they kind of intersect. So, uh, oh, and I should plug, of course, Radner's, uh, album is called eulogy volume one that's why we have the podcast um and it's a great album um again that's called eulogy volume one so check that out and here is my interview with josh radner um, anyway all right let's get started so um i always start by asking you know are you the type of i guess songwriters fall into two categories those who write every day regardless of how bad it is and and those who just say i'm just going to write when the mood strikes and i always think you know it's interesting that that among genres of writing songwriters are unique if you ask a poet or a novelist anyone like that they're going to say you got to write every day button the seat no matter how bad it is but songwriters tend to be more oh you know when the mood strikes so and i'm i guess i'm also curious i guess the follow-up to that is do you find that your experience, you know, as an actor where the more discipline is probably involved, do you find that that makes you more disciplined writer to begin with songwriter? Wow. How do, how do, well, let me take the first part of the question. I think I, I think I split the difference. I'm, I'm not, um, necessarily, uh, you know, gotta write every day kind of person as, a, as you know, even with prose or, or screenplays that I write, um, but there can be a danger in waiting for inspiration to strike. I think, you, you know, the, I forget who said it, but inspiration t tends to find us while we're working, yeah. you know, we're already working. So you have to kind of create a culture of process where, uh, I, I just try to create conditions in my life where I have the biggest issue I would say is time. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm managing in a weird way to write songs right now, but I'm busier than I've ever been releasing this album. We're pl I'm planning a wedding. It, there's just a lot going on. Um, but if I can grab a little bit of time, um, and also there's a different, there's a, there's a lot of ways for the, the ground to be fertile as a writer. Sometimes I pick up the guitar and I'm just playing around and feeling what my fingers would feel like. What's the sound, you, you know, if you're watching TV is when I was first learning guitar, I would watch a movie and I would try to play chord shapes as I watched the movie, something very mindless just to give the muscle memory as my finger. And then you, you might develop a chord progression that sounds kind of interesting and it makes you feel something. And then a lyrical idea emerges. I found that when I sit down to write a song, the, it's better for me to have a very strong lyrical idea than a melodic idea. I have a lot of orphaned melody ideas on my voice memos of like, this is a great progression. And I say what it is. 
it's easier for me to say, all right, I'm going to write a song. I just started a song last night that's called Taking Turns. And it just says, it, the, the idea is it's never fun when we're crazy at the same time. You know, it, it works much better when we're taking turns. I'll take tonight, you take tomorrow. You know, uh, it's just a relationship song. But once I have a strong idea, a lyrical idea, I can kind of ride the the surf into the shore, you know. Um, but I but I don't put myself on any sort of schedule. I find that I I work really well when I just have time and um and I need a lot of time. I need a lot of time. You know, I need a I I I can't, I'm not one of those people that's like, I've got 45 minutes now, go. Like I need a three hour block where I might get 45 minutes of work done in that block, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's a luxury, you know, time is a luxury to any artist. That's what everyone's looking for. Um, and to your point about uh, actors and uh, diligence, I would say, you know, when I'm about to do a play at the public theater um, in starting in January and uh, it's going to require an enormous amount of discipline. But I but the strange thing about being an actor and in some ways, the reason I became a writer and, and a songwriter is because you need permission to act. You need someone to call you off the bench and say, all right, we want you. We're going to do this. There's a there's a thing happening, whether it's a movie, TV show, a play. And I just hated that. I hated waiting around. I hated waiting for the call. And this is this is, you know, right when I got out of grad school, I realized, oh, I don't like that feeling. I want to wake up and 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 at least have a shot at being creative every day without someone giving me permission. So that's why I started doing all these other things to give myself a daily uh, dose of creativity that wasn't dependent on other people. So a couple of follow-ups. One, um, you know, I imagine most songwriters tell me they don't start with lyrics. They start with, uh, you know, it's kind of melodic idea, not with lyrics, but I, I wonder if that's because of your experience as a prose writer, right? That, or, 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 that type of writing, I would have to think that that's because of your background in that type of writing where you naturally start with the lyrics. I think so. I mean, I, I've just noticed, you know, I've been writing, it's been over a decade since I've been writing songs, started with Ben Lee and about six and a half years, I'd say, where I've been writing my own stuff and a lot of my own stuff. And I, I just, there's something about, I get a good melody going and there's no guarantee I'm going to find the right uh, idea for it. Yeah. Uh, but conversely, if I get a really good lyrical idea, I generally can uh, find find a melody. Now, now that's not true. I I have two songs that I quite like the lyrics, but the melody just felt like a B B plus with some A lyrics. And I sent them to a friend of mine, a Nashville songwriter, and I said, "If you can, if you can top my melody with these lyrics, go have a go at it." So it's not always true. I mean, I think that I resist any sort of like rules because I've certainly had. Um, chord progressions, you know, I had a chord progression kicking around for a long time. And then my fiance, who, who at the time was my newish girlfriend, um, got food poisoning and she was really laid out one, one morning and, and just so sick. And, and I ended up taking this chord progression that had been floating around and I didn't know where it would land. And I wrote a song for her called, it'll be over soon. Um, as a kind of like, I couldn't be with her, you know, I just kind of sent this love note in the way of a song. So I use that chord progression. So I'm wary of, of, of saying any hard and fast rules. I write songs from all different angles. I'll get, you know, I'm writing a song based on a John Steinbeck line that says nothing good gets away. 
And I thought that's a great title for a song, you know? So, and I, and I've got, uh, a chorus and two verses and it feels like it's floating. The other thing I do, which, um, my fiance really admires, uh, is I will sometimes write 85% of a song and put it down for months and let my kind of unconscious find the missing parts and pieces. I don't, I don't force it. If there's no deadline, I try to just stay in, you know, have my antenna up and say, it'll come to me. And I really trust that process. All right. Again, a couple of follow-ups. One, when you have those lyric idea, lyrical ideas, and then you mentioned you have all those voice memos of the melodies, do you go back to those voice memos and say, hmm, you know, maybe some of these might fit with those lyrics? Uh, no, I probably should do that more. I, like I had a night last night where I was just scrolling through my voice memos and say, what the hell was this? Like, <laughs> you know, I don't, if I don't title them or write the, the, the chord progression in, um, there are some things, you know, that, that it's a bit of a, you know, archeological dig, right. To go into the voice memos and say, what's in here. And then you think like, what was happening that night that, or that, that's pretty nice. Or why did I even think that was worthy of being recorded? <laughs> like that's right. nothing, but I, but you know, there's so much like being a creative person is like draft after draft and crossed out and highlighted. Like if you really, I, one thing I really like doing is I'll have a finished song and I'll go back and listen to the three voice memos where I was figuring it out mm -hmm. and I can hear the drafts and I find it really exciting to go, Oh, that's the moment where I hooked that, where that melody dropped in or the phrasing dropped in. Um, I find that really interesting because I'm, I'm, I'm into process. That's why I like these kinds of conversations. You know, I listen to, um, Mike Birbiglia's podcast a bit and, uh, it's just comedians doing this essentially yeah. like talking about jokes, working through jokes. And, um, you know, there's that thing of like, don't analyze a joke. And it's like, no, 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 that's actually false. Like, analyze a joke, <laughs> like analyze a joke, analyze a song, pull it apart. You know, I learned to be a songwriter by, um, well, one, I, you know, working with Ben Lee, who's such a high level songwriter, has been doing it for so long. But I also, I would just hear songs that I say, I love that. What are they doing? And I would look up the chords. And it was like looking under the hood of the car, you know, to say like, what are the parts and pieces that make this work? Why am I, why is this emotionally affecting me just from a technical standpoint? And then I go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That chord progression does something to me. Like, you you know, we all have our kind of favorite sonic kind of yeah. things that get us. And I started to learn, you know, okay, I can take, I can actually take some version of that chord progression. I know those chords work in a family together. I can write a whole new melody to it. I can change the rhythm of it. I can, you know, capo it in a different way, but, but kind of keep, so I just, I don't know. I got really into figuring out how, what makes this thing work because I was coming to it later. I felt like I really needed to give myself like a strong education. So you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, uh, putting on the television and it makes me think about songwriters who have told me that, that, I could tell you millions of stories about what what they what they will do in those situations, but they will often sit in front of the television. Um, but it's got to be something that they're not really paying attention to. Yeah. Um, one songwriter told me, uh, I think Derek Miller of Sleigh Bells told me that it's got to it's got to be football, but it can't be a team that he's rooting for that he cares right. about. Um, right. You know, so it's got to be in something about that background noise because the second you start to focus on the dialogue, you know, you can't do both. Yeah. Um, but I heard you mention that a few minutes ago. So is that a part of your process or do you need that kind of, is external noise, 
you know, maybe it's even white noise or something. Does that matter? Do you need that? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, um, I'm not honestly a big TV watcher, much to my fiance's dismay. <laughs> she loves television and loves getting swept up in stories and wants me to watch uh, more TV with her. Yeah. Um, we have a joke that she she wrote uh, a while before she met me. She wrote a kind of manifesting list of this is what I'm looking for in a partner. Someone advised her to do that. And one of the things she wrote was good at TV. And she meant he's, you know, he, I want to be good at watching television. She says, you are good at TV. You're just you're on it, not watching it. Right. Uh, so uh, I, we've we've noticed a thing. She just wants me to sit there next to her while she watches. She wants the company. So sometimes, you know, if it's not too distracting to her, I will noodle around on the guitar. And I'm I'm generally not invested in the show she's watching. So I understand why that is. I think in my early times, you know, I, I did something really that I thought was quite smart for myself. I was doing a TV show called Rise on NBC, a Jason Kadem show that that just ran one season. But I was shooting in New York and I was a new, very new guitar player. And I decided I had to be there all the time. I was the lead of the show. And I decided I was never going to bring my phone to set. But what I did do was bring a guitar to set. So, and we we shot in a theater a lot. So I'd grab a seat, you know, somewhere in the theater while they're lighting and setting up the shot. And I would just noodle around on the guitar. I was learning how to finger pick. I was Travis picking. I was doing all sorts of things that required a lot of hours and muscle memory. Um, and then sometimes people would join me and people would say, it's so nice to just hear the the noodling of the guitar. You know, there was something <clears throat> calming about it for people in the middle of this crazy workday. So I, I I jumped forward in in my just technical ability by, uh, you know, I think every artist and every human really is having to navigate their relationship with technology. And if you want to be a creative person, um, these little boxes of, uh, you know, that hypnotize us and distract us, it's you and I'm I'm in a moment of of um, feeling quite the pull of the phone is very strong right now, so I think we're all having to navigate our relationship to that. And um, it's also like you know the the phone it's making it indispensable. Like you can't even read a menu now without your phone. You you know your your calendar is on your phone. If you're a songwriter, the voice memos there. It's everything's collected there. So um, anytime I can put the phone down and just deal with this tree that's been fashioned into an instrument, there's something liberating about it. So also, um, Agatha Christie once said, the best time to plan a book is when you're doing the dishes. And I take that to mean, and there was an article in the Washington Post, this was like six months six months ago, about how we get our best ideas when we're in the shower, like why that is. And it's something about when you're doing a mundane activity. Um, yeah. And again, I could tell you songwriters have told me you're doing the dishes, gardening, vacuuming, cleaning, folding laundry, something about the mundane activity that kind of turns the conscious, you know, the, an activity that involves no forethought, lets the yeah. unconscious bubble up. Um, and I find that to be fascinating because I, you know, I get ideas not when I'm staring at a screen. It's always when I'm doing something else. Right. Um, and I imagine that's probably where you get a lot of ideas, too, in those times when you're not planning on getting ideas. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, walking my dog, taking a hike, I find something, I think Einstein had that where he would go on walks and that's where he got all yeah. the, uh, there's something about um, 
a kind of somatic or kinesthetic, I don't know what the right word is, but, you know, actually moving the body and kind of shaking off the cobwebs. Um, I find that very useful. Um, I had one other thought that I, that has escaped me, but we can continue. It'll, it'll come back to me. Well, yeah. I think you're, I know you're an Indigo Girls fan. And I and I yeah. interviewed uh, Amy Ray. She's on the podcast about. Oh, a year cool! Ago. Yeah, she she talked about how walking your dogs is a great time for creativity. Um, yeah. Oh, I remembered what I was going to say is that uh, you know if I'm working on a screenplay or I'm or I'm always working on songs, I find that there's something great about that. There's no. Um, I mean, you have to do this in a healthy way, but there's no difference between the, uh, or a hard demarcation line between my life and the creativity. So I go to get a cup of coffee and I hear someone in line say something fascinating. You, you know, it's like, oh, that's a great bit of dialogue or that's a great lyrical idea. Or sometimes you miss here something. I know um, Tony Kushner has a one of his early uh, plays called A Bright Room Called Day. Yep. And it was a mishearing, I think, of a Martha Graham dance called A Bridegroom Called Death. But he heard A Bright Room Called Day and he wrote, this play oh. called, it was a haunting miss mishearing, you know? So sometimes um, I just like the idea that my antenna is always out for, for good material, for snatches of dialogue, for lyrical ideas, um, even melody ideas. There's something wonderful about it all being usable. Listen again, I, songwriters have told me turn signals, car alarms, uh, things they hear, you know, give them melodies. Um, Brit Daniel Spoon told me he actually story told me was he actually sits in a bar with a laptop and listens to what people say and then writes the idea types lines he here he overhears in a bar. That's great. That's great. Jeff Tweedy has that great exercise of uh, you know writing down like say like astronomy terms and then baseball terms and then you kind of like mix the two just to get like some weird phrase combinations together. Yeah. Um, I, you know, again, I, I think to me it's, oh, back to your point. So I want to, I want to mention this because, um, I wrote an article in the Washington post about this. I'm a big runner and there's a very, you mentioned exercise and walking and there's a reason for this. Um, and it's all been replicated in the labs. It's not snake oil science, but there's a chemical in the brain called brain derived neurotrophic factor that gets secreted through increased blood flow, which is often exercise. So what they've done is they put people on a treadmill for 20 minutes and then after 20 minutes, give them a battery of tests that measure higher order thinking, executive function. And they find those people always score higher than people who didn't exercise. Wow. And and the chemical, again, the, the benefit lasts about 90 minutes post-exercise. Yeah. Um, and and the the interesting thing is that it's not dose responsive. So 60 minutes, the, the ideal is 30 minutes at 60% max heart rate. Okay. That's not much more than a moderate walk. Um, and so yeah, 30 minutes at 60%. So it's not dose responsive. So 60 minutes isn't twice as good as 30 minutes and 90% max heart rate isn't any, isn't any better than 60%. But the key is it has to be, and I, I mean, it's been replicated, measured, it's fascinating stuff. And I absolutely use that as a part of my process. The one caveat is that it has to be an exercise that doesn't involve higher order thinking. So uh, walking in nature is much more effective. Like that, that effect gets wiped out if you're walking in the city because you uh, have to watch not be run over by cars. Oh, um, interesting. If you're reading a book, 
it's it can't you know that effect's going to get minimized. Um, if back when they were doing this, if people played Wii Fit when they exercised, the idea was it, the the effect was wiped out. Um, even even they find that treadmills aren't aren't as effective as like um, as bikes because stationary bikes because in a treadmill you're thinking about balance a little bit. So wow. to your point, it, it's and I've written about this. And it's fascinating stuff because I'm a runner and I kind of wondered and and it's all been replicated in the lab. And there's a great book um, called The Friendship by Adam Sisman. It's about the friendship between the poets Wordsworth and Coleridge. And uh-huh. I estimate that um, Wordsworth walked 100,000 miles in his life, which is some insane amount if you kind of, you know, of day by day. But both of them composed almost all of their poems entirely on walks. Wow. Um, so to your point, I mean, of of going for a walk, there is research behind that. Um, and and so it, you know, and I find that like I'll work out in the morning and I'll go for a walk early afternoon and I take care of it that way. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's kind of um, you know, as a fundamentally like a constitutionally lazy person, all all this research that comes out that reinforces that is like, oh man. You know, but but look, when my day has exercise in it, it's a better day. There's no yeah. question whether or not that provokes creativity. And it often does. Uh, it's a better day when I move my body. What about are you a pen and paper person when it comes to lyrics or computer? Uh, rarely on pen and paper. Sometimes uh, like on an airplane, I sometimes have scrawled, you know, pen and paper yeah. lyrics. Uh, I've written a couple good uh songs on airplanes like just kind of lyrically um maybe it's that's the white noise but um i'm mostly uh i'm a, i'm a bit of a i like to see things kind of clearly so there's something about i have a you know a couple large files of songs um especially when um when cor- when uh, when the melody when the melody and the lyrics are are really fusing together I'll forget I have to write the chords in and I have this kind of way I do it in my word document where I can just hold on to the song. So I tend to um, have my laptop open when I'm writing songs. And I do find that planes, I get a lot of ideas on planes. For me, it's because of the urgency, um, because we know in the plane lands, you've got to stop working. Right. And, and I, you know, like if I sat here for two hours, I won't get nearly as much done as if I'm on a plane, because I know when the plane lands, like again, I got to wrap things up. So um, yeah. I, f- I find that yeah. to be very, and I, that's for me at least why it's useful because it's like a false deadline where you have to finish. You have no choice. Right. I also never um, get online on planes. Like I, I, otherwise I'll, I'll do what I do normally, which is, you know, read the New York times or, you know, hop on some social media. <clears throat> so I always look at airplanes as this kind of like pencils down. I mean, pencils up, you know, for work, but but putting down the, the the social media, putting down the news um, and having that time, I, you know, deadlines are glorious. Like I think Shakespeare wrote all those plays because he needed three plays a year for an acting company. You yeah. know, there's something so great about it's due now. Did you ever read um, or see Adam Grant's TED talk about the sweet spot of procrastination? Oh, he essentially says if you get an assignment or a, a project, something you have to do, it's very bad to do it immediately. Yeah. Very bad to wait until the very last minute. There's this kind of moment when your unconscious mind has been doing its work. It's been drafting it loosely in your head, even if you're not aware of it. 
uh, coming up with ideas, you know, and then there's this, this moment that, that feels like it's too late. It feels like you're starting late, but it's the moment when it kind of is like everything's coalescing and it wants to be born. And that's the moment you're trying to, you're trying to catch that particular wave. So I thought it was fascinating, you know, as a procrastinator, you say, oh, I should start things immediately. It's like, no, 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 that's actually not good for your creativity to start things immediately. And it's certainly not good to wait until the last night. You know, um, there is a, a this kind of sweet spot he describes. And, I, you know, I'd always tell my students when I was teaching that if you think of the writing process as only taking place when you're putting pen to paper, you're going to be miserable. But but the second I give you an assignment, the writing, like whether you know it or not, when you're walking, when you're in the shower, when you're eating, those ideas, I firmly believe, are working themselves out. You're not aware of it, but they are. And so you always have to think of your writing process is always happening. Yeah, I'm doing that. I'm I'm in this process very much now for the vows for my wedding, where I just for months have been jotting down thoughts, memories, uh, sentence fragments, little things that I think I'm just kind of throwing them in the hopper, yeah. you know, and then you pull them out and you go, I, I actually won't need that. Or, oh, this, this, I really want to go deep and, and expand on this. So yeah, I think of, um, you know, it's almost like, uh, I don't know why this is coming to me, but like you're cooking a meal, uh, but you, you're going out to gather some fresh ingredients. You know, you're, that's all part of, it's not in the kitchen, it's not chopping it up, but it's foraging, you know? Yeah, feel, yeah. absolutely. Um, I'm going to read a couple of, I've got a couple of quotes up here by writers. I always like to read songwriters and see how this applies to songwriting. So one of them is by, is by Hemingway. And Hemingway says, I always worked until I had something done and I always stopped when I knew what was going to happen next. That way I could be sure of going on the next day. So in other words, he always stopped at night when he knew he had something else to say because he was terrified of waking up the next day with nothing to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've known, I've, I've read that. He said that, and I've tried to do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I have tried it. W what happens to me is uh, when I catch a writing wave, I get really excited. Yeah. And I like to keep, I like to keep doing it. It's kind of, you know, it's like a drug, like I want more of it. Right. So it's very hard for me to pull the plug and stop when I've caught one of those waves. Um, so I think it's probably wise advice, but, it, but it's one I've had a hard time following. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, I, Again, I, I can't do that either, but I think it's, I would love to have the discipline to say I'm good for now. Um, yeah. you know, cause yeah. I know the next day I'll have something I think to say. there's something, I think there's something about, um, getting a healthy enough relationship with your muse that realizing that inspiration is a part of your life. It's not a uh, weird random thing that befell you. So that's what I mean about like creating conditions where you yeah. can be inspired. Um, one thing I learned from Ben is, and I've learned this from a lot of songwriters. I think that people who are professionally writing songs are not super precious about the songs in a weird way. I mean, you know, when you, when you catch a good one and you want to, have it out in the world, but they just write songs and they're like, well, we'll write another one tomorrow. Mm -hmm. you know, we wrote one today. We'll write another one tomorrow. And Ben was particularly um, kind of attuned to that. He wouldn't stress that much if the song was good, bad. It was just the song we wrote today and we'll write another song tomorrow. So I think there's something really psychologically healthy about saying, no, we're our, our, our antennas up in the air. We're going to work. We'll catch another one, you know? You know, it's funny you say that because I I do find that songwriters I've talked to have been around for 40, 50 plus years. 
uh, you know, they scoff at the idea of you write only when the mood strikes. You know, to them, the idea of only writing when the mood strikes is laughable. Um, it's always, you just have to do it every day, no matter how bad it is, you've got to do something. Yeah. I, I, I think that's true on some level. I think that if you're a writer, you got to write. And I think there's a phenomenon of, you know, people who want to be writers who don't write. It's this curious thing of like, they want to be like a writer in a, in a kind of cultural, you know, smoking <laughs> a cigarette in Paris kind of sense, but they don't want to actually do the writing and any any writer knows that a lot of the writer's life is a kind of misery. You know, it's, it's a kind of uh, just slog, but I also, um, I have found that I just have to gesture towards my creativity in a day. That could be a couple lines of dialogue. It could be a prose, something essay-ish thing I'm working on. Um, you know, it could be reading this play that I'm about to do, uh, I, it doesn't have to be songwriting, but sometimes I'll notice my guitar sitting in its corner, looking lonely and underappreciated. And I'll pick it up and I'll strum, you know, something very basic and something in me relaxes some sort of, um, I didn't even realize like something that was heightened or anxious or just the sound of the guitar, my fingers on the strings of the guitar, uh, and I hope the guitar feels also something good, <laughs> you know, but there's something about um, reminding myself that I have this instrument now in my life. And it's a really good outlet for for a, this kind of storytelling that I'm loving doing right now. Um, I just it, it I have to get my fingers on that guitar and remind myself that I have a real relationship with it now. Yeah. All right, here's a couple. This is my favorite quote. This is by E.L. Doctorow. He says, I know writing, this. One. Yeah, writing is like driving at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. Yeah. Um, have you yeah, heard that one before? Way. I have. Uh, E.L. Doctorow went to my college, to Kenyon College. So I, 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 and I love his books. I've read a lot of his books. And that quote, Ben and I wrote a song that we abandoned for our second record, but I kind of want to finish it and record it. it's called three feet of light and it's about this notion of you know life is like driving at night you only get three feet of light but you can get the whole way home that way you know but as a um, songwriter do you or do you often start with an end in sight or do you just say let me i have no idea where this is going i'm just going to start and see where this takes me um i would say it's the latter more than the former i sometimes i'll start with it with an idea and then i'll have to you know, three feet of light it to find my way to the end. Um, my fiance has uh, coined a phrase. She calls it the Radnorian twist. And it's this kind of thing that happens at the end of the song where um, where there's like a switcheroo kind of, you know, where something unexpected happens. And I have them in quite a few of my songs. And I they're more like happy accidents. Like I, I discover them as I go. Um, one of the... Uh, singles on on the record eulogy volume one that just came out is called new york city and it's this love song about this woman in new york city and it's all kind of tied up into the city and the last line is um the real question it just hit me am i in love with you or new york city you know mm -hmm. and that's kind of the twist of like have i so collapsed you and this city together that i don't even know what i'm loving anymore um 
And I love when I discover those because it's very, um, I don't know, it's just, ple- I think it's pleasing to the listener, hopefully. And it's pleasing to me because they're often like accidents. Yeah. Um, and and those are just delightful. I love that he, I, no one's ever heard that. You're the first songwriter that's heard of that quote before. I just think it's an amazing quote. Uh, yeah, it's, incre- it's an incredible, um, it's a liberating quote for a creative yeah. Right. Like, it's like, I've never been one of those people that structures my screenplays or like I put on a, you know, miner's light on my forehead and I just try to make it around the next corner and see what's there. And I, and I found that if I trust, you know, certainly for writing screenplays, I, I'm living through it as an actor in a way in my head, I'm living through it as an improvising character. Um, And I know with all my years as an actor, I know what I'm going to, what I require from a writer. And I try to give that to my scripts, to give that to the other actors. Like I know what's going to be juicy and fun for you to play as an actor. Cause I know what I would want, you know? Um, and that's really, that's really helpful. And, you know, for me, at least, I don't think I have any right knowing what something's supposed to look like when I start uh and that's kind of the same thing it's funny i say i don't think i have any right uh, you know but that's always been my philosophy is i don't think i have any right knowing when i start to write how it's supposed to end up i think the biggest as a any type of writer especially prose writer i guess the you know the trap to fall into is that if you say here's where i am here's where i want to end up and that really limits you um if you have that idea yeah and i think in some ways it's um you know, I think I think a lot of songwriters get into a kind of metaphysical, spiritual zone when they talk and whether or not they're believers in, you know, some other intelligence or God or whatever. It doesn't really matter because you have the experience enough of knowing that a song comes through you sometimes and you go, wait, this wasn't from my conscious mind. I mean, I have plenty of things I can point to where I the, the song is actually smarter than I am and was doing something bigger than what I would have devised for it in my conscious mind. Um, I've become good friends with a songwriter in Nashville named Josh Jenkins, who is just such a great dude, but also a great songwriter. He had a band called Green River Ordinance. And we had breakfast the other day when I was in Nashville, and he, uh, a really high-level older songwriter that he was co-writing with, um, they did a, a draft of a song. He goes, we got to go through, we got to get our finger, fingerprints off this song. Mm. Like, we got to scrub our fingerprints from it. It can't have oh it was it was it was the guy who wrote uh i can't make you love me you know so so clearly like who i don't know who it was but clearly like a a guy who just written tons of hits that you know you don't want your your stamp on it as as much as you want it to you you want to be the vessel for it that it came through you know and a lot of songwriters i think some songs i wrestle to the ground you know i there's there's effort there's sweat there's many drafts. And then there's other songs that I feel like the caretaker of or the steward, like, and you're just grateful they came through you. And in some ways, those, I suppose those, the latter ones feel a little purer, even though I have also respect for the ones I wrestled to the ground. Um, I just think there's so many ways to write a song, which is why, you know, the topic of your podcast is inexhaustible because there's so many different ways in. Well, you know, there's some, I've heard songwriters tell me that they don't trust ideas that come to them too quickly. Um, that the lyrics that come immediately are the ones they go, hmm, that's a little too easy. Shouldn't I have worked at that harder? Maybe, although I think it's sometimes, I don't want to over 
value effort and sweat. Sometimes yeah. sometimes when you're out of the way is when something actually comes through very easily and you don't want to overthink it. Like if that's what it is. I do know that as a screenwriter uh, in both my movies I directed, I ended up cutting the scenes that I thought were the most vital to the movie, the most that that kind of like were were the movie could never exist without them. And then in the editing process, I realized that the movie worked better without them because I think you you end up um, you as a writer. I think this is truer for screenwriting and playwriting than it is for songwriting, although it might be analogous for songwriting. You're telling yourself the story as you go. You're your first reader. So in some ways, you're overwriting to try to explain the thing to yourself. And then as you do drafts, you're like, I don't need that. I don't need that. I don't need that. And then you get actors involved. You know, you get an actor like Richard Jenkins involved who says, can I not say that line? I think you, I can give that to you with, with a look, you know, and you're constantly yeah. cutting away what you don't need, what you don't need, what you don't need. One of the greatest um, art pieces of advice is from Billy Wilder, uh, the film director. He said, let the audience put two and two together and they'll love you forever. And you want to give your audience enough work to do that they feel per, they're a participant in the story, that they're making connections. You, you, audiences get resentful when they're spoon-fed everything. Yeah, and as a writer, I've never missed anything that I've cut. I've never, or anything that I've submitted for publication that someone else cuts. I've, I've never read anything that comes out and said, oh yeah, why didn't they keep that? I forgot it was there. Yeah, totally. It's always better. I heard, uh, I'm, I'm friends with Susan Orlean, the New Yorker writer, and uh, she told me this great thing that she's had the same editor at the New Yorker for years who she adores. And she thought when she was a younger writer, she thought my great talent as a writer is concluding paragraphs. <laughs> that is what I, that is how I excel as a writer is my concluding paragraphs where I sum it all up and tell us what we've just heard. And uh, and she said she, every, for, she would submit these stories and the editor invariably would say, hey, Susan, just lopped off that last paragraph and it's good to go, you know, and would just say, stop doing that. Like, you don't need that concluding paragraph. So I think just letting it, it's, it's a really high level of trust of saying, I'm trusting the wisdom of my reader. I'm trusting the wisdom of the listener to do their work yeah. uh, and I don't have to overdo it here on my end. Yeah. All right. So last question. So you mentioned, we talked a lot about writers. I mean, how much do writers, you mentioned Steinbeck, um, how much do writers directly, and I'm sure, I mean, you're obviously a voracious reader, but how much does that directly affect your songwriting? Uh, whether it's any type of writing, I, I don't, you know, I've not spoken to many actors who are also songwriters, but, uh, you know, if any playwrights or anyone, you know, have direct influences on you as a songwriter or who are your, maybe, or who are your favorite writers, favorite genres uh -huh. have at it. Yeah. Well, I just read for the first time, I'd never read uh, East of Eden, speaking of Steinbeck. And I, a friend recommended it to me. And I, I think I half read Grapes of Wrath. I remember reading of Mice and Men and kind of shrugging. Um, I think I thought of Steinbeck as some sort of forbidding Mount Rushmore kind of literary figure. And East of Eden, I, I, I'm kind of telling, I'm telling everyone who's looking for a book recommendation, like, this book is a, like a rip roaring page turner. It's about 600 pages. It flies by. It doesn't feel at all like arty or literary in any sort of, um, you know, forbidding way. It's, you, you know, it feels like he was writing for the New York Times bestseller list. Like he was writing a popular entertainment. 
but also incredibly deep and searching and thoughtful and anguished. Um, so it doesn't have to be songwriters that inspire me to write songs. Any good art will do. Any good, uh, uh, you know, organization of words to convey a thought will do. Um, I, um, I'm quite obsessed with Nick Cave at the moment. I, I, his book of uh, interviews with Sean O'Hagan, Faith, Hope, and Carnage, is a book I'm recommending to a lot of people. Um, I, I, I like Nick Cave's music quite a bit. I'm more taken with him as a writer and a philosopher and a, and a kind of modern day prophet of some kind because he's suffered so much loss. You know, he's lost two children. Yeah, he, he was in the depths of heroin addiction and, and emerged from that. I, 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 I tend to really trust people who've been to the underworld and have emerged with something to tell. I, I, I think that, um, you know, I don't think that age confers wisdom, but if you're paying attention to your life and you're really letting grief, uh, intrude or, or do its work, I think it, it hones and refines us certainly as people, but also as artists. And I, I he's just been someone who's been so tempered by grief and his red hand files, these weekly emails are the best pieces of writing. I read every week. I urge everyone to sign up. They're free. He answers a letter every week and they're just gorgeous. You know, this, this past week was an atheist whose uh, friend is sick. And, and I think the wife asked for his prayers and he he asked Nick Cave, you know, I'm an atheist. It feels intellectually dishonest to me to pray, but I also want to honor my friend's request. Wow. I mean, it was just great. And his answer was, I thought, impeccable. So I'm really moved by him. I, I get very moved by sacred uh, literature. I have a song on the, the last song on the record, Joshua 45, 46, which looks like a, a, a Bible verse, but it's really was me right. about to turn 46 years old. But I quote um, Julian of Norwich, who says, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well, which is one of the more theologically comforting statements in the world. And also Teresa of Avila, who was asked, um, you know, do you believe there's a hell? And she said, yes. And then she quietly turned to the person next to her and said, it's just that no one's there, you know? Mm. And I, 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 I mentioned both of those in the story kind of glancingly in the song. So anything that strikes me that, that lights me up, you know, a friend of mine said, um, um, with, there's a song on the second volume called too tired to pray, um, that, uh, oh, someone told me in the jungle, um, the, where there's a poison plant, the antidote to that poison grows very close to it. So right next to the poison is the cure is a line I, I threw hmm. in to a song. So I'm always on the lookout for things. Um, I, I would say, you know, in my 20s, I read everything Philip Roth had to write. I don't read much Roth now, but I'm sure he's he's in there, you know, as an influence. David Foster Wallace, all these people, um, Laurie Moore as a as a short story writer. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd say Nick Cave and Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest that I adore, and uh, Steinbeck right now <laughs> are kind of what are rattling around my brain right at this moment. She typically gravitate towards the classics or uh no, not really. I in fact I I I I I don't. <laughs> I'm I'm just uh right now uh kind of 
intoxicated by East of Eden because it was such a good read. Uh, but it was a good reminder that that not, you know, I read Great Gatsby for the first time a few years ago, and I was blown away by that, too. I think I think we get asked to read some of these great works when we're too young. Yeah. Yeah. I just think we haven't suffered enough and failed enough and hurt enough, at, you know, um, you don't understand the pathos and the weight of a lot of these works when you're 17, 18, 19. And that's it for today's episode. Check back in a couple of weeks for a new episode. I do try to post these every two weeks, uh, sometimes with more frequency, sometimes with less. A lot of that depends on my work commitments, my family commitments, and also when artists can talk to me. It's not easy to get these interviews. Speaking of interviews, did you know... This is a relatively new podcast. Uh, I only started podcasting about a year ago. Uh, well, depending on when you're listening to this, I should say 2022. But from 2010 to 2022, uh, all of my interviews were transcribed, and they are all there archived for you to go down that deep rabbit hole. So if you go to songwritersonpodcast.com and click on From the Archives in the top, at the top, you'll see all of those transcribed interviews. I think there's over 200. Uh, so go down that rabbit hole. There's a lot of great interviews there. Um, but uh, you'll find all of those there. Again, the podcast itself is relatively recent. So there's a lot, a lot of reading you need to be catching up on with those old interviews. Speaking of interviews, uh, if you have suggestions for interview subjects or want to comment or complain, anything like that, email me at ben at songwritersonprocess.com. That's ben at, ben at songwritersonprocess.com. And that's it for today's episode. This wraps it up. Thank you very much for listening and have a good one. 